and I'm Jay Percy, and, and welcome, welcome to the Afro Animist Podcast. We are two Abia women and animist conjurers exploring witchcraft, healing, and psychedelics. The Afro Animist Podcast explores the secular through the spiritual, discussing life experiences through a sacred lens. Here you'll get to hear talk about philosophy, metaphysics, occultism, shamanism, culture, healing, nature, animism, the arts, conspiracies, psychedelics and witchcraft. Nothing is off the table in these discussions which aim to get to the heart of what it means to be spiritual and Afro-diasporic in an increasingly sterile, authoritarian and Eurocentric world. As Afro-Caribbean millennial Londoners, we keep it real whilst exploring the biggest mysteries of our multiverse. Join us in holding this space to cry, laugh, debate, build community and tear down oppressive structures. Welcome, 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 you beautiful, beautiful being of the multiverse to the Afro Animist podcast. You're here with me today, Jay Percy, the artist. And me, Nicola. And we're here today with a really special guest. Um, we're here with Emma Catherine, who is, we're really proud to say, is our mentor for Obia. She's our friend. She's just a brilliant, witchy woman. And we have her here today on this show. It's so great. She's a witch, an Obia woman and Voodooissant, practicing a mix of traditions that fully represents her heritage. She lives in the middle of England in a small rural town where her weirdness is very well known. You can find her in the woods, out by the river, sometimes collecting this or that, often muttering to herself, <laughs> quite often talking to a tree or a bird. I mean, same. Yeah. She writes for Gods and Radicals, The House of Twigs, which way magazine and she's an author she has several books out now so we're going to be asking her a little bit about that later she survives on coffee good books and beautiful tarot decks i mean i have this this view in my head that as soon as i have a bigger space i'm just going to keep collecting tarot decks i'm probably not even going to open them i i, I just want the tarot decks to have a collection of tarot i think decks. <laughs> i think that's the rule it's like a once you pop you can't stop kind of thing i've got so yeah. many that I just yeah yeah they're in the plastic wrapping they're just there as collectors every tarot reader i know is like <laughs> Yeah. So welcome, Emma. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I love hanging out with you guys. It's we love it too. <laughs> we love it so much that we're recording this episode twice today. <laughs> <laughs> the first time around, um, we recorded some excellent, excellent content. And sadly, it was a little crackly. So we're just happy to have you here again, like, so in awe of you so grateful for your time um twice <laughs> uh no don't even worry about it this stuff happens with technology it's great to know <laughs> that, but still <laughs> so today we're going to be talking with emma a bit about obia her spiritual practice in general um witchcraft and um combining that with her talent of writing so her books yeah, which I'm very happy to say we have one here. This is why I think the first recording didn't work out <laughs> perfectly because we yeah. we were still waiting for the books to be delivered. Now we have the book, we've read the book and it's a freaking amazing book. 
So we'll talk about that in a bit. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. <laughs> the book we're talking about is called Witch Life, uh, A Practical Guide to Making Everyday Magical by Emma Catherine. And I am really in awe of this book. So we're definitely going to be talking a little bit about this later um, and digging more into that. First of all, I think we need to tell us a bit more about yourself, Emma. So, well, <laughs> well, I've been, um, you know, been kind of practicing magic. I don't know, it always feels weird when you say that, but you guys know what I mean, you know, yeah. been involved in um, magic, witchcraft, spirituality for a long time. Um, started when I was kind of young, like teenager days. Um, I grew up in quite a relaxed household, so although my, my Jamaican grandma was quite religious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they all are. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, my dad would call himself a Christian, but, you know, we weren't, we weren't in a religious household, so, you know, quite open, quite relaxed, which is quite good, actually, looking back on it. I think growing up, you don't always appreciate that until you're a bit yeah. older. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like most people, for those of us in the UK, like in our generation, so I grew up in the 90s. So I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s. And, like, you know, my little sister benefited from the the explosion of technology, you know, where it became the norm to have a computer and the internet in the home. Um, But, like, I kind of missed that growing up. So all I had was, like, the library in my little rural town. So, like, Wicca was the first kind of exploration of that. Um, And I think many people can relate. There's nothing wrong with Wicca, but, you know, back then information was uh, not so easy to come by. (laughs) Yeah, I think think you can even... Yeah, you can walk into a a library and find so much information on Wicca. I mean so many paths start with wicca right yeah um, i think pretty much to be honest most spiritual people tarot readers who i meet in their 20s or 30s started as a teenager with wicca and charmed <laughs> they, they're the doorways basically yeah <laughs> the gateway drugs yeah exactly <laughs> they were and you know there's nothing wrong with wicca and i think you know I think because for a long time that was all there was. So when I kind of realised that there were other things out there, I kind of, um, I don't know, rebelled a little bit against all things wickerish or wickeresque. Um, like the threefold law? Yeah. I mean, I still don't subscribe to that at all. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> some people do and I find it quite interesting to discuss some, those ideas because I find it really interesting where where those ideas come from and even among Wiccans today you know is some people take it literally some people not so much and it's just really interesting to have those debates and discussions because I feel like that's how we learn from one another so yeah. explain to us like okay we know but for our listeners what is the threefold law yeah well i think like if you take it at its most literal um, and which some people do it's that anything that you do comes back to you but like three times as as well so for example if you do something good you're going to reap the benefit you know three times over Um, Mm and if you do something bad then it's going to come back on you three times as bad um and you know that's i guess the most literal translation of it um, mm-hmm. But then lots of people kind of 
don't subscribe to the, the literal sense of it. In much the same way if you take the Bible, for instance, and why there's so many branches of Christianity, because they each um, draw different meaning from the same text. You know? Yeah. So um, it's quite interesting, I find. Yeah. Um, but I don't personally subscribe to it. Um, no. I think um, it, it's probably quite fam uh, familiar for a lot of people who perhaps are finding their way out of mainstream religion into, first of all, Wicca, um, because th this idea of rules is almost so familiar. Yeah. Um, there can be a place of comfort there, right? But then yeah. when you start to look into the roots of Wicca and you know i apologize if i offend anyone in saying this but i feel that wicker in itself as a practice is almost quite omnist mm. um it it works with gods from different pantheons mm -hmm. it sort of uses practices that have derived from quite a few places in the world to find itself to this sort of new way of thinking in terms of witchcraft and magic um, I think maybe there is an essence of like familiarity there for people because there are things that look familiar to perhaps what they grew up seeing in the church or um, other religious bodies where they've, um, you know, grown around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's always really weird because I often say to people when I'm talking about like discussions around faith and spirituality and religion, um, yeah. I often say to people, you know, well, if I was, if I had to be Christian, I'd probably be Catholic. And yeah. they go, what? <laughs> but do you know what it is? I like the ritual. <laughs> I like that yeah. whole ritual. Like, I do like um, magic on the cuff. So I like what is generally tend, what we tend, generally tend to call low magic. So I like all forms of magic, depending on the mood I'm in, the need, the time, all of those things. But there's just something about ritual, whatever that ritual's for. And I think I like the whole ritualness of, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'll often speak on Catholicism, and I think I, I definitely do offend a lot of people. There are people <laughs> who do come for me in the comments when I say this, like, Catholicism is witchcraft. Absolutely. You have an, you have an altar, you have frankincense, you have candles, you have I someone mean, in ceremonial white robes presiding you know calling say, to faith. You know, eat the wafer and it's the body of Christ and you drink the red wine and it's the blood of Christ. That's some occult shit right there. Right. As, a, as a Catholic, as a Catholic, I can attest to that. Yes, it's fucking occult. <laughs> Seriously. In what, we spoke about this before and I think in our first podcast that yeah. that was a big thing for me moving into Wicca was when I took my confirmation at like mm -hmm. 12 in Catholicism, having to go to Sunday school, having to actually learn about the Bible and all that kind of stuff, have the Missal. So the Roman Missal is like <clears throat> the text that we have in the church, which has all the rituals in it, man, has all the magic in it. Like, it's Can I just interject and say, I went yeah. to Nikki's house and she showed me this Missal, this like book yeah. of rituals. And it's the yeah. first time I have ever seen this. So I'm like, this is a book of spells. How yeah. can you not tell me this is not a book of spells and rituals? That is exactly what it is. Set out the My exact same blown. way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I moved over. I was like, oh, might as well do some, yeah. something more active. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, what does your spiritual practice look like if it had a name what what is it called <laughs> who are, who are you spiritually <laughs> uh, um i don't know i don't have a a name for for it i suppose because i don't know um so like i say growing up 
Wicca and was the first thing that I discovered. And, you know, as you grow and you learn and you kind of um, find out new things and you kind of experience new things, you you change and your perceptions change and all of that. And so I spent a long time um, looking into, like folklore is something I love. And so there was a very heavy focus on the Eurocentric side of things because I'm mixed race, so my mum is white English. Um, so... So for a long time, I always felt that there was something missing, you know, and that not to, there was nothing wrong with what I was doing, but it just didn't feel complete. And so I then began exploring um, more Afro-Caribbean um, faiths, religions, um, spiritualities, whatever you want to call them. And the obvious one being voodoo, or vodun, as I call it now. And so... Um, you know, and I spent a lot of time kind of learning about that before even doing anything because there's a lot to to learn. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I just, and then, you know, came the Obia side of stuff, which as I kind of really began to understand myself and get to know myself and my heritage and my family's um, heritage, my father's side because I think sometimes growing up when you mixed race um to a lot of people or to a lot of white people it can look like you're always there's an overemphasis on maybe the black side of the family or the Jamaican side of the family um and what I say to people is that actually no because for all intents and purposes I'm British I'm I'm English you know this is my culture I know all of this I experience it every single day so I don't need to kind of... You're not in the Blue Mountains right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so I had to kind of actively push and search for those stories from my father's side. And it's quite interesting because I can remember talking to my grandma, you know, before she passed away. And, um, she never really spoke about her life in Jamaica much. And, and when you would try and question her about it, she she wasn't very forthcoming, you know. She'd just mm-hmm. kind of tend to say, well, you know, life was difficult back back home back then. Mm-hmm. And that would be all. And it's only when you grow up and mature that you kind of realise that she's protecting you from the harsh truths of, of reality and, you know, and all of mm-hmm. that. So because Jamaica is still a, a very poor country, away from the tourist um, side, of places you know. away from sandals hotel <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no, but um, it still has its it still has its uh, yeah it's been you know, under it's been underdeveloped by the yeah, west that's the absolutely, problem yeah. you know mm. um and so back then when my say when my grandma was growing up it must have been you know life wasn't easy life was difficult mm. and so i think it was that element of protecting so she wasn't always very forthcoming and i think that's the same with lots of like there were a few stories like the the you know but um yeah and so I really had to put a lot of effort into finding out you know lots of different things it was interesting and who you are spiritually yeah. it sounds it and I think we can both relate to that um definitely I'm I'm Antiguan Jamaican and I'd say broadly European, mostly yeah. Celtic, some Iberian. Yeah. That kind of, so there's a lot of ancestors within yes. my lineage that I haven't even begun to skim the surface on. Um, you know, I'm an Obia woman, I practice Obia. Mm-hmm. Um, I also practice um, or observe, like, I guess, 
like the Celtic uh, yeah. wheel of the year. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so there are sort of like elements that I will observe from both because um, I, I don't know. I find it well, important. Why shouldn't you? Because they're, they're all parts of us, you know. Yeah. And like for a long time growing up, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if other mixed race people felt like this, but for a long time you kind of feel like you have to choose a side. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Or you're told, you're actively you're told. told, you have to choose mm-hmm. a side. Yeah. Even yeah. as an actress, I had friends asking me, so, like, how are you going to market yourself as black or white? And I'm just like, oh, I didn't realise I had to choose. Yeah, like, it's not something <laughs> It's not something you consciously think about unless you're asked about it, you know. I can always remember. Um, so I had this friend and he was married to a mixed-race man, Um and we were walk- we'd been out to the pub and we were walking back to their house one evening and we were having this conversation about how do you how do you describe yourself to people because they they'd had this conversation at home and he was wanting to get my opinion so he found it interesting so he was saying that his husband kind of although he's mixed race when he's asked he will call him he'll just say oh I'm black mm-hmm. and I was like well it depends who's asking and the reasons why they're asking really doesn't it. If you like someone I don't know, you like to get told it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> you know, why are you asking me? That's, that's weird. What are you doing? <laughs> you know. Um, but if it's like for genuine, I don't know, people just ask you that shit, don't they? You yeah, know? yeah. And so my response is if it's someone who's genuinely interested and, you know, like I used to work in a shop and there's this little old Irish lady and she used to love traveling and she used to love meeting lots of different people. So when she asked me, oh, where do you come from, lovely? I wasn't offended at all. I'm like, well, my dad, my father's, you know, and I explained all of the history. Yeah. And then there was another guy like years later and it was just an incident that stuck in my mind because I used to work in retail for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, and where are you from then? And I knew what he meant. And I'm like, well, well, you know, I'm from, and like the town where I'm from, I'm from Newark. And he's like, no, but where are you from? I'm like, I'm from Newark. Like, I speak with a very <laughs> Newark accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You do>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and we have this back and forth and I can see him getting frustrated because I'm like, I don't know what you mean. And he's like, no, what country are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from England. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to make people very awkward. So we carry on and carry on and carry on until he has to spell out what that is actually a fucking racist cook. Early on a Sunday for the sea bomb, but sometimes it deserves. Have you approached anything similar like that within your magical practice, like being questioned for practicing one thing or another, or yeah, how you choose to practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like weirdly, it's it usually comes from, and you know, not all, but you know. Generally, it's black Americans that mm-hmm. tend to have, um, not always, most of them are pleasant, but the odd times when I have received, you know, so I'm in a beer woman, I practice beer, And I can remember writing an article, and I remember ranting in the group at the time when it happened, you know, during your I, I, I remember yeah. this. Yeah. So, um, I, so I wrote an article on my own personal blog about the spirits of Obia. So I never write explicitly in all of my writings that I do. And, you know, apart from the book, which we'll talk about later, I never Mm -hmm. really go into detail about the ins and outs of what I do. I can talk at great length about what I believe and this and that. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. but because Obia is quite, it's an oral tradition. You have to learn from someone. Um, So I never really write much about Obia and the practices that, 
involved in it. So this article was just generally about the spirits of OBR. And, and for me, spirits, gods, deities, all of those things, anyone, no matter where you're from, can learn about spirits from whichever culture you have, you know, there's no harm in learning. Um, yeah. In fact, more people should learn. Um, for sure well it's an important part of i guess religious education even though this isn't religious it's religious education it's understanding what your fellow human ascribes to what fuels them in their day-to-day yeah absolutely so anyway i got this quite um i got this comment on my blog and it was basically telling me how dare i practice obia i'm quite clearly just uh I don't know. I mean, anyway, there's a heavy emphasis on me being European. Okay. Yeah, I remember that comment. It it was a very heavy emphasis on this, perpetuating this notion that if you are mixed race, that you you have no claim to your African heritage whatsoever, which, yeah, I I strongly disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of... And so when I write about the spirit, so when I write about any kind of religion or faith, it's important that you look at how things change and how they change through human interaction because, you know, religion, spirituality, whatever you want to call it, it is a human trait. Like, you don't see animals organising on any (laughs) like trait. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's very much a human feature. And because of that, um, when things happen, when huge changes happen you know it's only natural that those religions those spiritualities and those beliefs shift and change as well you know so when i write about obia in the caribbean yes you know we can follow obia back through west africa egypt and all those other places however when we get to the caribbean we see that it changes again and i think it's the same of any spirituality any practice wherever you are in the world wherever new people meet those ideas and interact with those ideas and especially when there's a lot of bloodshed pain hurt and when that is massive you know so when i what i'm talking about here is slavery and the effect slavery has had on the world on you know on everything in the world has been massive so we're still, you know, and it's when people, they'll say, oh, well, it happened ages ago and not even to you. So why why are you moaning about it now? And it's because of those generational ripples. They're still felt those pains that we, that on the surface might look unrelated to what happened, you know, centuries ago. You know, it's all of that. You know, when we talk about ancestral lineage and ancestral trauma, it's the same kind of thing, but... Well, yeah, we even have now science is backing this up. What we've known in spirituality um, is being backed up but through the study of epigenetics, which is the study of how genes express themselves over generations. Um, so if your grandmother has experienced a trauma, then there are going to be genetic markers within you mm-hmm. that are sort of programmed to react to that trauma in a certain way in order to protect yourself. And this goes back generations and generations yeah. so we, we do have <laughs> we do actually have a physical uh, i mean if you're interested in that side of things you have a material explanation for how these things work yeah which i think is really important to highlight because the epigenetic trauma of losing our spiritualities um mm. over this time has yeah. been massive yeah. and yeah you're you're right obia has changed it was where it 
started in Egypt and then moved to West Africa, there would have been a change there. Then from West Africa to the Caribbean, there would have been a change there. And now here we are as British Caribbeans. There's going to be an element of needing to learn to work with the flora, the fauna, the spirits of this land. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, 100%. Because, you know, when we look at Jamaica and the Caribbean, the wider Caribbean in general, you know, um, and we look at what happened, you know, all of those people taken sold into slavery and I'm not interested in how that happened you mm-hmm. know you, what we get at the Caribbean is you get a more a melting pot of various different peoples taken from de- various different places and what would happen is that you would get a mixation of people it, so in the plantation it would be a mixation of people from many different tribes in many different areas because you wouldn't put you know a whole community of enslaved people who'd had that solidarity of community before in one place because they would rise up, you know. And that's mm. where you get a lot of the, um, so for in Jamaica, you've got Patois, which is the kind of um, the dialect, um, mm. you know, and, and across many of the islands and anywhere where you kind of find um, where slavery happened, you have that where the language has changed, where whether that's, so in, in Haiti, for example, you have, um, although French might be the official language, there's also, you know... They have their own Creole. Yeah, exactly. You see it in different countries in the Caribbean as well. And so in the same way, you be a change because you have an influx of people from lots of different areas sharing their beliefs and drawing strength from them. And, you know, these people would have spoken different languages to one another. So, and they would have, they would have had different beliefs. And so it was, it was a melting pot. So Obia changed again. And then again, when you consider the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean and the mixation of people between the enslaved and the indigenous who, you know, the British and Spanish before them were enemies to them both. You know, so yeah. So what's then, interesting about those Caribbean indigenous is up until very recently, we are told they all sort of died out. Mm-hmm. We started to do DNA tests on Puerto mm-hmm. Ricans, and yeah. that actually what they're seeing is they they are a mix of Afro indigenous yeah. and um, Spanish. So that indigenous didn't go anywhere; it just mixed in. Yeah, yeah. Is this the Taino, and, you know, the Taino tribe. One of one of my yeah. aunties swears blind that like one of her great great grandmas or was um, Indian. Yeah, <laughs> as in native Indian. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. My my granny yeah. says the same thing. And do you know what? My little sister. One Christmas, her partner bought her one of those DNA ancestry DNA mm-hmm. kits, and they're really interested. I don't know how accurate they are, but they're really quite interesting. And like, there was zero point zero two percent indigenous. I'm like, I'm claiming that. <laughs> 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 but you know, and and so you see how, and then like you say, Jay, we are free Obia women living in Britain, and again, it's that adaptation of Obia. It means something different to us as it would have to say Nanny of the Maroons. But again, mm-hmm. we see the parallels where she fought and overcame the Brit, uh, the better equipped and might of the British army um, using Obia because she used what was available to her in that space in that place it would have been different from what would have been you know from what she would have known in ghana 
and and so it's the same and for me this is where so i practice witchcraft and a beer and witchcraft for me sit very nicely um, together they kind of flow together um, because the witchcraft i practice is very much a kind of folk magic um yeah and so the beer side fits easily into that Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now you've said a beer. We've we've said a beer like a million times now. <laughs> Probably a good time to address what is a beer. <laughs> so I often describe it to people as a form of Jamaican witchcraft. Um, and I know it's kind of weird. You have to be careful how you define witchcraft when you're talking about different practices from different places in the world because it can often be offensive. But for me, Obia is witchcraft, because if you look at the history of Obia, you have Mile and the Mile men who were seen as the authority of, so that is what we might call the the white side or the right side, if you want, because they were the authority. And the Obia men and women were the ones like doing it without their say-so, you know. Um, Uh, And so there's distinction of white and black magic. Yes. So Obia traditionally was seen as the um, baneful, um, maleficent side of magic. Because for me, witchcraft does have to have that hint of malefica as well. Um, mm-hmm. I love that word. <laughs> <Malefica>. I know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so for me, Obia is witchcraft. But not uh, people might have different ways of describing it. Um, mm-hmm. Is it devil worship? Why are African diasporic spiritualities deemed evil? It's not devil worship, no. Um, And a lot of why they're deemed evil is, you know, the spread of Christianity. We see it all over the world. We see it even, you know, if you look in some of the grimoires and you look at, like, the hierarchies of the demons in grimoires, in in goetic grimoires, um, you know, you see a lot of ancient gods and goddesses. You know, in some of you'll see Hecate even, you know. Um, and what you see is the demonization of anything that isn't Christianity. Because how else do you get people to convert to to what you're saying, you know, to your own beliefs? You get them to convert by saying they are bad, you've been, you know, they are evil. And many other ways as well. By force. Um but yeah, so so that's a lot of it. But then, you know, we have so we have figures like Sasabonsa, who is a spirit. And if you you know, there's you can find lots of folklore about Sasabonsa. I mean in the folklore is often seen or portrayed as a vampiric kind of um spirit who attacks hunters, he snatches them up. And you see all these images and they're very scary and all of that. And again, I think it is just that feeling of otherness because Sasabon Sam is a is a nature spirit um in essence and I think Western um Western paganism probably has a lot to answer for in the romantic you know the romanticism of the wild wooden nature you know how lovely would it be to get to some ancient forest and you know in moonlight and da 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 fuck that it'd be terrifying (laughs) (laughs) if anyone you know i remember the first time i went into the woods at night on my own it is terrifying yeah it is scary like you know did um, you do that to prove something to yourself yeah (laughs) 
Yes, <laughs> <Okay>. I'm definitely <laughs> yes, scared <laughs> in the dark at night in the woods. <laughs> definitely scary. <laughs> Um, and in a way, it's kind of acknowledging, it's not like some bravery kind of thing, like I did it. It's acknowledging and respect that actually we as humans, because I think we have this idea that, especially in the UK where we don't have many that many open wild space, like, you know, um, for most of us anyway, like the, the large areas of land that we have in the wild beauty spaces are often, you know, in private ownership with no trespassing signs and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, we tend to think of the wild and nature as being this soft, nice, kind, all nurturing place. And nature is nurturing and life giving and all of those things, but it's almost like a tough love you know it's indifferent nature is indifferent to our individual struggles you know mm. if you go out into nature ill-prepared and ill-equipped you know you are going to pay the price of that um and i often think on a on a kind of animism spirit work level that when you go to those wi- real wild places quite often they don't want us there the nature spirits don't want us there you know it's quite i think we kind of place an importance on ourselves and our connect on ourselves in our minds kind of, you know what, yeah. I, what i'm trying to say like yeah we we think we're more important than yeah yeah environment yeah yeah we're, we're human we are the top of the food chain yeah. we are here we, we think we're going to stroll into a wildwood somewhere and sit beneath a tree and you know we're going to have this beautiful experience with this tree you know you go into the woods ill-prepared and or in bad weather or you go anywhere ill-prepared in bad weather you are going to pay the price and i think you know part of spirit work for me is the recognition and the understanding of our place our real place in the world and how we interact with it so going into the woods at night time for me and it wasn't like some some heroic feat of like spending a full night in the woods alone it was like 10 minutes <laughs> i was terrified <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know it's not some um because it's pitch black so if you go into the woods so if you're in the woods and like the sun is starting to set when you are in the thick of the woods it's dark it's gloomy you can barely see so when it's night time so we went camping didn't we ladies oh my gosh um, it's so cool in our initiation <laughs> and away from the campfire it's yeah. You know, you take a few steps away from the campfire and you're in utter darkness. You can't Mm -hmm. see, you know, where you're going. You can't see anything. And, you know, we were probably quite noisy um, because there was a group of us and there was drumming and all of that kind of stuff. But if when you're on your own and you're quiet and you hear all of these sounds, like the cry of a a hunting fox in the woods Mm. when it's pitch black is, it's enough to almost make you like... (laughs) You know, and because we are so um, pop culture and media, we are so affected by Mm. it that we are afraid when we go into the woods. Because what do we think is going to happen? You know, Um, Duppy is definitely jumping out and eating. Yeah, or there's going to be a murderer, or there's going to be. Yeah, I'm worried about the humans. Is this one weirdo me in the woods? What other weirdos? Exactly. You know, I can remember going to the woods with my sisters at night time um, 
and we were doing a ritual and we were on our way back and like my oldest sister was like why am I the one at the back if I get snatched no one's gonna see me <laughs> and my other sister's like Emma turn your torch off if the murderers are there they're gonna know where they we are because they can see our light I'm like but I can't see anything there's no murderers it's <laughs> and so there's a lot of mental stigma we have to unpack ourselves and that was part of going into the woods, an unpacking of that, or at least recognising where that comes from. Um, and I think it's important that we are able to do that if we want to kind of build that connection with spirit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when, when we had our initiation, it was epic. It was so epic. But <laughs> Jay and I were speaking about like how different the woods seem like in the day we could see mm-hmm. obviously all the trees and everything and it, it wasn't too busy like you know there was space through once it got dark it was like the whole landscape changed it was yes. like what I the picture I'd had in my head was completely different um it's I feel it's such an amazing thing to be able to do that I've done a few vision quests where you go out and you just start outside like no tent no nothing for days on your own and yeah. getting to those places where you can sit and B, and yeah, forget about the axe murderers that might be running around. Like yeah. it is, for me, it, it's been one of the most transformational um, kind of work to do. And I think it's because it is those, it's like you have to literally walk into those dark places. You have to be able to get past that. You have to be able to bring, I mean, I'm sitting there in my vision quest, I'm just praying, I'm like, Deji, baby Jesus. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> And you have to, once you've gone through that yourself, once you've actually gone through it, it gives you such such a strong sense of kind of like your own personal power and just the understanding of that fear in those scary places. I mean, even when you were when you were mentioning Sasa Bonsam, you sparked memory in me. And I don't know if you wrote about this, Emma, on your website, because I did read everything you ever wrote. Um, <laughs> or if it was just somewhere else in the deep, it'd be an internet search. But someone was saying that, specifically with Sasa Bonsam and kind of the the stories that are told about him that aren't necessarily fully true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, also about the days that you go into the woods. Like in many cultures, like back in Africa, there there were specific days that were for the spirits of the woods. So you can't just be mm-hmm. human going in seven days a week, hunting up what you want to hunt and doing all that yeah. kind of thing. You have to give respect. And they were saying something like, on a Thursday, nobody from this village would go into the woods because Sasa Bonsai yeah. would take them. And it isn't like a scary thing. It's like, no, this is about respect. And I feel like... Yeah when we're bringing this stuff over something that I feel like in the West we struggle with a bit is like really yeah. the truth. Well, I just think it's, things. it's just the capitalistic culture we live in, you know, under capitalism. Yeah. And I often, so I write for God and Radicals, which is a pagan anti-capitalist website. And mm-hmm. people often don't understand what anti-capitalism is. So for example, I can always remember one of my editors once sharing a picture and a screenshot and it was, so we had a book sale on, the website had a book sale on, so it had various authors. And someone had made a shitty comment about, oh, look at these pagan anti-capitalists trying to sell shit. As if to say that, you know, by people being properly... um, Engaging in the marketplace. (laughs) Yeah, by people, yeah, you know, there is nothing, in fact, it's proper. It's anti-capitalist to actually pay people what their work is worth, because so many of us spend our working lives being underpaid. You know, mm-hmm. if we look at minimum wage jobs, so if you look at um, the essential workers who we all were our heroes during the the lockdown, you know, most of them are on minimum wage jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, 
um, the work that they do is worth well more than they get paid. And so that's how capitalism works. People are underpaid. It's always about getting the cheapest. And we can see it throughout everything in our society. If we look at, um, you know, and this is, isn't probably a good example because I'm also against the dairy industry as well. But if we look at the dairy <laughs> industry, for example, you know, and the cheap milk in supermarkets where actually to produce it, it costs more than it is sold for, you know. That the government has to subsidise farmers a yeah. great deal because it just... Yeah, it that's what capitalism does. So in mm. under capitalism, the, the true worth of people's work that is extracted from them isn't... You know they they aren't um, they aren't paid for. They're, mm. they're you know they're there's no energetic exchange for. there. Okay. It's extractive. Yeah, and so going back to the Sasabonsam and the snatching of of people who disrespect nature and the laws of nature, um, I think that's just a reminder that you know we can't keep taking and taking and taking without consequence, mm. and we're seeing that now, really, aren't we? Um, it's it's actually mind-blowing you've just really blown my mind I've never thought (laughs) about anti-capitalism like that like anti-capitalism like it's anti-capitalist to pay somebody what their work is worth oh my gosh that (laughs) I'm an anti-capitalist boy that's it I'm I'm on that (laughs) we talk about capitalism and people you know we talk about money but actually trade humans have always traded with their neighbours for sure. We've never expected stuff for free. We've always had to work for whatever it is. Um, I just believe we should be more in control of that and people should be, you know, I'm all for workers' rights. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Can I ask you um, how, yes. how you found your practice? So, sorry, how you found your way to a beer? Because obviously, like you said, you're born in Newark. I'm sure there's not just a beer men like running around there to <laughs> be mentoring you. How did you? How did you? There's very few beer practitioners, and so like when I first heard of beer, um, it was can't remember how old I was, but it was from my dad, and it was just kind of almost a throwaway comment. And then I kind of spent a little time researching it. And I, I must have been quite young. I can't remember. Anyway, at that point when he mentioned it, I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. Let me kind of look into it. Because when I look back on my journey, and it's been a long, long process. So it's, it wasn't just one thing led to this and that happened. And then it was just all of these years of practicing, doing, learning. Um, it's been a journey. So it's not just been one set thing. Um, but with this so I'd been practicing witchcraft for a while um I had my own practice I'd been doing it a while I was very um open about it anyway so like you say I grew up in a small rural town and when my grandparents came to Newark and I guess it was the same for lots of Caribbean communities that sprang up in different places throughout Britain but um Newark's quite a small rural town so there's our closest city is Nottingham. Um, so that's got a large Caribbean presence. But Newark, the, the town I live in, which is about 20 miles away from 
Nottingham, it's probably got quite a large Caribbean community. To the extent when I was growing up, I really didn't know who I was related to and who I wasn't. In that, you well, know, awesome. you go to my, <laughs> you go to like grandparents because grandparents was always where everybody went at the time. You'd see your aunt, so you'd see your aunties and uncles and cousins, and by that I mean I would see my dad's brothers and sisters and their children but then there'd be other people who would come and there would be other people I didn't know and my dad would be like oh Emma this is your uncle so-and-so this is your auntie so-and-so and to the point where now I'm older you know you know that's just a, an easy way of explaining to the kids and because you know when you look at the um how Jamaican people came over um so my, it wasn't on the Windrush but it was around that time so my granddad came over first, got house, job, all of that thing. And then my grandma came over and, and it was the same. And so when people came over, you had to already know somebody, um, I believe. And they already had to be like quite settled and you would spend time. And, you know, it wasn't just like a free for all, you know, which is always the case with, with immigration. It's never a free for all. Letting but, everyone in, opening yeah, the doors. It's never all that. of these Caribbeans Regardless <laughs> taking of our what, jobs. Like um, the media might portray, it's never that. So, um, yeah, so the end result is you had families. So, like where I live, I could name you about five or six of the main families, you know, and from them, so I can always remember saying to my auntie one day, oh, um, she mentioned this person. I was like, oh, we're uncle so-and-so. She's like, we're not related to them. I'm like, I can remember my dad saying to me, this is your uncle so-and-so. <laughs> so that's what I mean. So do you know what I mean? There's a very uh, close-knit type community of Caribbean people. And it, I guess it's true where close friends do end up becoming your family. So I was at a person's house they were um and i won't reveal their name um they were they weren't blood family but they were you know close enough that um yeah you know what i mean <laughs> they, yeah, were they were an uncle family, they were an so. uncle <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and so i can remember going to their house and i was already practicing witchcraft so like i remember just like so if you come to my house right and you know about witchcraft, you would know there would be no question what I'm practising. If you didn't know, you might just think I've got an odd taste in decor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking at the witch's hat behind you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was at this person's house and I can remember, like, I'd been there a few times. Like, obviously, I'd been there lots of times, but before I was practicing witchcraft, I, it really didn't mean anything to me. But then as I began to go with my own understanding and knowledge, I'd see little things and I'd be like, hmm, I wonder. And that just kind of kept building up until one day I had the courage to ask them about it. But in asking them about it, I also had to explain, you know, my own and you had to out of, yourself. By the way, sure. I'm a witch. I notice witchy things in your house. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> and so, and then I kind of bugged them for ages to teach me, and that's it. The I bugged them to death to teach <laughs> Which is what we did <laughs> to you. Very <laughs> <laughs> That's method. literally what we did to you. <laughs> people, it works. <laughs> Find someone and bug them to death. But no, I that was like literally. 
in our oh, last podcast, you, when we tried to record this before, you said something about this, um, about having to ask a certain yes. way or a certain amount of times or something like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. To make sure that we are really want it. Yes. Is there that kind um, of rule for a beer? Ask three times, knock on the door three times. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, because I think even in my own experiences, so of why I set up the beer programme to begin with um, was because I didn't want a beer to die out. But mm-hmm. there's, you know, when I set up that, that first programme, and I think we started with around 15 of us, mm-hmm. there might have been 14, 15 people, but actually at that final initiation, we were there were four yeah yeah four people you know and that is so even when people are interested and they think they want it a beer isn't a path for everybody even with people who already have you know a magical spiritual understanding of whatever tradition you know and it's not for everybody so I was always expecting that we would end up with very few people Mm -hmm. because it is not an easy path and it demands a lot of you and it demands that you face yourself and that you see yourself as you are, you know, Mm -hmm. which can be a scary process for some people. It demands time. It demands effort. It demands all of those things. And so I think as people started to do it and they realised, you know, they actually began to see what I was talking about, this is a lot to sacrifice when you're already leading a busy life. And if it's something that perhaps you thought you wanted, but then you start doing it, you know, it's not something that you can just carry on half-arsed. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to Mm -hmm. want it all the way through because there will be times when you think, do you know what, is it worth it? Um, Because it's not an easy path. Um, But yeah. (laughs) Do you know what, it's crazy because I never once thought is it worth it I may have thought am I worth am I worthy mm-hmm. but like it was discovering you has been one of the like most amazing gifts I've basically given to myself in my life <laughs> being able to I know I love you um <laughs> but being able to genuinely find someone and also it makes a difference to me that you are mixed race because of the connotations that we're talking about with you know actually being allowed what are you allowed to practice what are you allowed to do and think and we're say? allowed to do um, whatever we want to do just for anybody I agree with you, listening <laughs> I do agree with you and you know it's it, I just think it's been such a for me it's been such an important journey into kind of yeah coming into that place self where also being able to connect with where I'm from because I feel like again if you're mixed race from the diaspora it's a whole other thing to be able to find those places to connect um yeah. and with my family especially they kind of came over and they assimilated you know so there's it's just very we're very very english so there's not an english in that way where you know they're catholic some of them are catholic most of them don't care um and there's not any of that kind of culture and for me growing up that was always something that i struggled with kind of not having this connection to the people that i look like you know, so like to my grandmother's yeah. people. Um, so discovering a beer has literally been the most amazing thing. But I, I will be honest about it. It is like fucking hard work. And when my practice lags, I feel it like I've never felt it before. And I used to do all kinds of like, I've said to Jay before, like six hours worth of like Sanskrit chanting to like connect with these gods and goddesses and whatever. And that was not as 
when I kind of haven't been doing those practices, I haven't felt it in the same way I felt it as when I've been lazy about a beer. Because I can feel those yeah. spirits on my back saying, do your work. Yeah. <laughs> they show you. I think mm-hmm. it's important to say there, just get, picking up on a couple of things that you said, because Obia, even in Jamaica, if you were to look at like the statistics and stuff, it's still, you know, it is on the decrease. Mm-hmm. And I think as places become more... As, as places become more westernised, I suppose, as we, you know, they become richer and we start moving away from... The, the folklore and the the folk remedies and the knowledge of our ancestors and we you know I think I think that's just affecting people everywhere and it's mm. divorcing people from their cultures wherever they are in the world and I think that's why we see I, th- I don't know I've gotten nothing to back this up and it's just my opinion but I think it's why we see an increase in mental health concerns as well Mm -hmm. you know um it was interesting because i recently wrote about the river mama um who is a duppy in jamaican folklore for people who don't know so i wrote about it and i shared the article and she was reading it and she happened to say and she was like oh i really enjoyed reading that and she goes i really enjoy folklore she says but like i feel like i'm right i haven't got a culture and it actually made me really quite sad and i was like Mm -hmm. no you do have a culture it's just been erased like you know and without going down the rabbit hole of white and black and what they mean and them being modern constructs designed to separate people um if you look into the history of whiteness and who was considered white you know yeah when italians went to new york they weren't considered white initially people weren't considered white in that you know the, the ruling elites, you know, um, mm. their consideration. So the history of that is, so, and then you start, so I, I said to her, you know, you can start with like where you are, where you live, like learning the, what, what plants grow where you live, what are the, you know, what are the stories related to them and the land where you live. And so I think anybody can do that wherever they are in the world, whatever you want to connect to, if you just take the time to learn about it in lots of different ways. So, Mm -hmm. um, and for me, folklore is a good way of building connection. So, you know, I like the Anansi stories and, you know, it's all of those myths and legends and little stories, the Duppy stories, for example, I can always remember being a kid and, and and like I say, I was an 80s, 90s kid. So, you know, it was normal to watch, you know, you wouldn't let your own kids watch it now. But, you know, because I remember watching scary TV programmes or films and yeah. my dad would go, ah, they're come, they're come. And, like, ah, and it'd be like, you know, and then when you say that to you, your peers and they're like, what? What's a duppy? <laughs> a scary film with your friends years later, you're like, ah, oh, the duppy, I come. They're like, what? <laughs> and then, you know, you can connect to the land where you are and the spirits and all of those things. So it made me a bit sad when she said that, but I think it's symptomatic of capitalist culture, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I also think it's really important that as much as we as um, African diasporic practitioners and people who like hold on to the traditions of this land as well, like Celtic mm-hmm. traditions. Um, it's really important, I think, that white Europeans do that as well. 
because yeah. that's also a part of for me the decolonization absolutely it's, it's a part of the anti-capitalist work yeah because until they truly understand who were there like druids and what the who the celts were mm-hmm. and what stories and spells and rituals they had um it's they are going to find it difficult yeah. to reconnect you know, with themselves as I've kind of conversed with people or started to converse with people all around the world and stuff, quite often you come across the sentiment that English, English, specifically English people aren't liked because of, you know, the, the history of, of England. And Colonisation, yeah. And what I often say to people is, you know, that is true, but also you have to look at how those same ruling classes treated their own poor people, you know, Mm. Um, because for me, working, being poor, working class, that is, you know, it does intersect with other um, issues. But actually, if we look at the oppression of poor people, it's, you know, yes, we can look at colour and race and all of that. And, but actually, the way the ruling classes in whatever country of whatever government treat the poorest in their society as well you know they use the same practices on those same people as they you know Mm, um yeah and i think it's important that we realize that solidarity with other people i completely get that and solidarity is the right word Mm -hmm. because if they're learning about that history and the working class history understanding that it's the literally the ruling class we can all start to point towards the ruling class and understand how class race gender sexuality um and other markers of who we are as individuals these things are like used as weapons against one another and that's creating a divide in itself yeah and for me Um, you know obia and witchcraft generally um but specifically obia has always been the tool of the oppressed and the poor. It's been the tool of people who have had nothing else. If we look at Nanny of the Maroons, for example, I know, Jay, that you've recently had a couple of workshops and I've written about her before, but if we, she was an enslaved woman. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So Obia and witchcraft have always been the the tools of the poorest in society. Um, yeah. So, you know, for me, I just see all of those things. It's just like you see those little correlations and those little crossovers in everything, you know. it's And for me, that's what Obia and witchcraft is. It It's not just a separate thing. It's something that it's belies almost everything, you know. It's there under the surface. And so, it, yeah, it becomes more... When you start looking at it like that, it's become it's a way of life, isn't it? Rather than just something you unpack on a specific day, mm. at a specific time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Well, this is like why I, I love it. Go. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Even like her name, animist. Like that's why I love the term animism because I feel like it's almost like maybe the most complete yes. way to describe these practices. I agree. Do you want to talk a bit about mm. that animism? Yeah. Oh, I love animism. Uh, <laughs> it is my jam. But you're right, and it does, doesn't it? For me, obia and witchcraft are um, animistic practices as well. Mm. You're working with with spirits. If you even if you look at sympathetic magic, okay, mm. which is for people who don't know, it's where you take something and you use it in a spell because you want to use a quality of that thing. So, for example, mm. if you use 
thorns in a spell for protection. If you look at what thorns do on a plant, they protect it. But they also, in the case of um, rambling rose, they help it to grow and to by attaching. So, you know, if you want a spell of protection while you're on your journey of growth, you put some thorns in that from the rambling rose as well. So that's sympathetic magic, you know. I'm just writing and, this down. And, I'm gonna, gonna be making <laughs> that. <laughs> it's going in my yeah, book of shadows. It makes sense, but also it makes sense on a spiritual level. So when for me, animism goes hand in hand with witchcraft and obia because when whatever you use, you know, it's not just using that plan. I don't like the word use, but I don't have a, a another. I like working with. Yes, working with. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I am using a part of a plan in a spell, it's not just I'm using that plan. I'm working with the spirit of that plan. And quite mm-hmm. often that comes from working with that land. So, like, I always advise people if they want to start an animistic practice, start by going out where you live. It doesn't matter where you live. If you've got a garden, start in there. If you live in a city street, go for a walk around your block, you know. Just go out, get to know the land, get to know the feel of the land in different times of day. You know, like we were saying, the woods in the day and the night are totally different. It'll be the same for those places in your neighbourhood, your street, your garden, you know. go. Uh, I love going out first thing in the morning. I get up early and when that street is quiet and it's like the beginning of the day, it's just totally different to like a couple of hours later where there's cars and there's people and, yeah. you know, so getting to know the land um, and then when you start to get to know the land, you want to start to look after the land. So even then you can start, it can be as simple as like taking a rubbish bag with you and picking up litter. Like at first you feel very self-conscious when you do it. You really do. But then like after a bit, you don't give a shit. So it's all good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, really what you're doing by doing that is you're looking after that land. I so I've got a lovely garden and I grew up not far from where I live now and I can always remember the man who lived there before me and he was like a really avid gardener and you know I don't see it as my garden I rather see it as me being a steward of that land and the spirits that Mm. reside there it's not mine I don't own it if you know my true opinion is that actually how can humans actually own the earth like you can't yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's its its own being if you understand animistic things animistically the land belongs to itself you are like you said a steward you're someone who's supposed to be there who's custodian to the land yeah absolutely and then you know when so going back to like the the spell work when you take things from that landscape it's not just using that plant for its properties you know you've built up a relationship with that spirit of that planet and the spirit of the land and the other genius loci in that place you know you you've got a working relationship with that spirit and so it's and then you know it becomes more than just you know using this because it, it does this or um, and for me that's animism it's that's the pick you know it's everything is alive we work together with it you know you you literally have um reminded me of a really beautiful story about being caretakers so this is something that I believe now like I believe that part of the reason we are apex you know we're on our two feet and we got our opposable thumbs is that that is what we're supposed to be you know reconnecting back to these places of our you know the most ancient practices which were all animistic um and there's this beautiful book I've mentioned it before I think called um grandfather by Tom Brown so it's about this guy um who 
uh, I don't know, in like the 60s or something, maybe even earlier, he was a little boy, white boy, um, but he met a shaman who was grandfather age. And Mm -hmm. it's this this story that he was told, you know, he was taken to um, this riverbank. So there's a beautiful river. And on one side, there's forest. It's completely overgrown, massive. Um, on the other side, there's forest and it's completely taken care of. Everything is healthy, growing, really vibrant. And grandfather says to him, this is what we're here to do. I have for my whole life taken care of that side of the bank that is everything's growing, everything's, you know, nothing's tangled in each other. Everything's got space. And the other side I haven't taken care of. Now, nature can continue to to go and look after itself but there is an amazing skill and ability that we have as human beings to support that and I think that's you know (laughs) that's kind of more where my thinking is going now it's like how do we support nature to be its absolute best and I feel like that's kind of what draws me into doing these practices what is our point as human beings on this earth like that makes sense right to be caretakers of this earth what a beautiful mission actually yeah story time over (laughs) (laughs) that that was really beautiful I know I love that Um, and these talking about these sort of rituals and practices that working with and you know sympathetic marriage uh, marriage Mm. sympathetic (laughs) magic what am I thinking of it really leads us on to this lovely segue of your book Witch Mm. Life where you do have like elements of sympathetic magic rituals in here. Do you want to tell us a bit about witch life? Um, what can we expect to read in this? I do. Well, you know, I say that it's for everybody, beginners and experienced practitioners alike. And it's one of those books where, now, I say this with the full knowledge that I read books when I get books and I can't help it because it's just the way I am. I read them from cover to cover you know, whether they're designed to be like that or not. But this book, you know, please do read it from cover to cover. <laughs> but also, <laughs> I want it to be one of those books where people can dip in and out as they need it. So, you know, for, I guess the point of it is to make your life more magical. If you, you know, if that is what you're wanting in life, if you, and for me it is, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's what can you do every day to make sure that you are having a practice? Because for mm-hmm. me, there has to be an emphasis on practice. You know, it might not be daily, it might be weekly, but there has to be consistent practice. Um, and for me, the practice element is perhaps more important than the theory element. Um, learning is great, and I would be the eternal academic student. Like, I'm a nerd, <laughs> I love learning, you know. Um, but at some point, you have to, you can have, there's nothing wrong with doing that forever, you know. The term armchair occultist has tended to be banded about as a bit of a derogatory term. But actually, there's nothing wrong with reading lots of books and having all of the theory. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make you the occultist. Mm-hmm. You know, the you know the occultist part comes from the doing. You know, mm-hmm. and you can do with you know you don't need all of the theory to do the do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you do have to do something. And so mm-hmm. I wanted which life to be a book that people can go to when they are new or perhaps they just need some inspiration, perhaps they're stuck in a rut they're wanting to kind of get out and there's something in there for everyone. So, you know, the Sabbath's the wheel of the year. Um, So for people who don't know, that's, you know, Samhain, Yule, 
Beltane, all of those markers of the that come from European um well really it's the European agricultural calendar. So mm-hmm. really it's animism in a different form. That's how I tend to view the wheel of the year. Um so there's those parts in it, there's parts about moon magic, there's all kinds of magical things for you. Do you want to hear something really spooky? Yeah. Um, Yesterday, (laughs) as I always do, I got drawn into buying a crystal from Market Store Mm -hmm. and it was this pendulum I hear all the time. I'm such a sucker (laughs) for these things. I found this like pendulum that is black tourmaline and a clear quartz crystal and I'd Mm. uh, I'd sained the thing um, to cleanse the the crystal and I was holding on to it and I picked up your book and like flicked open to a page and literally I kid you not pendulum comes up the whole section on pendulums just like this is amazing but um yeah I've been especially interested at the moment in this whole like divination section of the book Mm. um where you're talking about um shell throwing as I I um throw shells and this this is really some good information on other things that can be thrown as well um casting dousing scrying um i'm really interested to get stuck into scrying because i apart from the sort of water scrying mirror scrying isn't something that i've really done a well any of i love mirror scrying and i one of the reasons i love it is because you know it's good for like stuff on the cuff so what I mean by that is because I I love like the setup I love taking the time to set up but sometimes you need to do something and you need to do it quickly and you haven't got time to do everything as you might like or set up Um, and Mm. so you can do mirror scrying with the mirror in your bathroom if you need to um one of the good things I I don't know if I put it in the book or not but one of the things that I really love to do with and it's a form of mirror scrying but I also think it's a I use it as an ancestral kind of connecting with ancestors as well and so everyone should try this um just in a mirror get in a comfortable position so you can see yourself and what you do is you just focus on your reflection so you're looking at yourself and it's really weird because it doesn't take long and it's almost like your face changes before your very eyes and it's almost like and for me it's almost like I'm seeing specific ancestors Mm, you know so if I am and I use it if I have if I want to contact the ancestors about a particular thing so I have different ways of working with the ancestors. This is just one of them. Um, and everyone should try it. And you'll see what I mean. Try it and let me know how you two get on. Because I am going to. You can see my mouth open at this. I'm yeah. really fascinated Yeah, it doesn't take long. And it's almost a form of trance work as well. Because mm-hmm. it's almost, it is trance work, you know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's crazy to see how it's your face, but not your face. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's how mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. describe it. I'm glad you brought up ancestors. I think Nikki had a couple of questions. Yeah, I on did. Ancestors. I actually, I actually wanted to ask you, why do you feel like it's important? So obviously, throughout, you know, pretty much all of the African diasporic religions, mm-hmm. if you look at um, Asian religions, there's this um, underlying thing of ancestor veneration or worship. And I just get asked mm-hmm. a lot of questions about. It. I just wanted to ask you, like, why do you feel like in within this, these practices, that's an important thing to do? Because I think that 
they are a connection to ourselves. Like, mm. particularly for those of us in Western industrialised countries where the focus is very much on individual, like individual performance, um, the wants and needs of the individual. I think it is a reminder that we are more than just our individual selves. You know, it's that whole saying, it takes a village to raise a child, you know. Um, family, and I say this knowing that people don't have good relationships with their families, and I think this is part of why it can be so devastating for people and, and why they need to do that work. To, and I believe in boundary setting as well, even with toxic families. In fact, mm. it's necessary with toxic families. But for most of us who don't have any deep um familial trauma. Um, I think ancestors are important because we can learn about ourselves through our ancestors, mm. you know. Even, I mean, even in very practical sense, if we look at my family and there's a history of heart problems on, you know, within my family, you know, that's one way in which knowing about where you come from is very important, albeit very practical and mundane. But I think it's the same spiritually as well, knowing mm. the journey that our ancestors have been on, understanding that their lives were so much harder than ours. Um, I think it's important that we, I just think it's important because they, they teach us about ourselves and they we can draw on strength from our ancestors and they connect us to each other, to distant lands. I just think it's really important that we know ourselves and know our stories and where we came from. And our, that's the story our ancestors tell us. Yeah, yeah for sure. And you did sort of mention like traumas and intergenerational traumas with families and it is more difficult to work with family with your ancestors when you do have that in your lineage Absolutely. um however as someone who is continuously working with those traumatized and traumatizing ancestors um i gain an understanding of myself there too that's a really important part yeah. of my shadow work because i know within myself um very interesting i'm i'm a cancer son cancer um rising scorpio moon we know what comes with a scorpio moon i can fucking be spiteful <laughs> i can bite back when i feel i'm wronged because yeah, i am the same boundary setting can be really difficult for me so where i find it difficult it comes out as spite and understanding that understanding where this comes from in my ancestors helping them to heal through it is helping me to heal through it. And I want to mention this is very advanced stuff. This isn't something I would necessarily yeah. recommending for beginners working with traumatizing or traumatized ancestors. But um, when you've been doing this as long as I have, it's just gotten to a point where like, I need to clean up large yeah. parts of my shadow. Mm. And for me, cleaning that up is working with these people who have yeah. given me, given me these traits because you know maybe being spiteful was very necessary when being on a plantation because that was the only way of setting your boundaries yeah um but now it's not it's an adaptive response that isn't perhaps necessary for me where i can just say to people like listen that's not cool yeah. you don't do that for me absolutely i can always remember being on a panel and it was for some american university and um it was for an english group but i think they'd been looking at witchcraft and spirituality and all of that stuff. And I was on a panel with two other people. And interestingly enough, the question of working with your ancestors came up. And so there was a, a young person in the audience and 
they wanted to know like they I think they felt a bit of pressure actually because um there's so much talk about ancestor recognition but what about if your ancestors like were just awful awful you don't want to know that you, you don't you know and I think I was quite different from the other two panelists who and you know their message was it's our duty to do um ancestral healing but I don't think it is our duty to do ancestral healing unless you want to and I very don't like I don't like I don't like the idea of the word duty being used yes, in that context. Exactly. And, it isn't duty. Yeah, and I think you're right, Jane, what you were saying is it's very advanced work. So if you're just starting out and on, you know, you're starting out on your spiritual practice and you want to do ancestor work, but actually you're a little bit afraid because you've got all of this trauma that you need to deal with. But I don't think you should feel that you have to deal with that when you aren't ready. It's not ready. an obligation. No. It is not and an I think obligation. If you try and deal with it when you aren't ready, it's just just you know it's so damaging that you have to be in a place where you are ready to take that on you know so I don't feel it's an obligation but like you say it might be at some point you get to a place where actually you feel you are ready but you you need to Um, yeah and mm -hmm. it's taken me being ready 10 years of therapy and years and years of dipping in and out of witchcraft and spiritual practices to get here so (laughs) it takes time people yeah and then, you know, so then that leads on to the question of what to do if, say, um, you're, you just don't want to work with your ancestors. And I think we can look at ancestors in a very broad sense of being, you know. Yes, there are the family ancestors, the ancestors who share your bloodline. But then, you know, there are also ancestors of the craft who are people who have had such an effect so, for example, Marie Laveau would be such an ancestor of the craft. She is, in fact, a lower in, in some um, Vadoon traditions, you know. Um, so even in, in witchcraft and Wicca, you've got people who are ancestors of the craft, who are seen as ancestors of the craft because of their sheer import and impact on... So, you know, we can... Um, Ancestors can also be friends, you know, because the, the, the question comes up about what about ancestors for people who are, I, I don't know, adopted and they don't know their birth family at all, you know. Well, for me, you, your family are the people who raise you and love you. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be blood family. You know, you can interpret ancestors very widely, I think. I, just I that think came of, before. Sorry. That came before. <laughs> Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think it, if you can look at this in terms of if we're all spirits in ourselves yeah. that have mm-hmm. been here before, have had dalliances with each other before, um, then spiritually you have that like connection. You're in that spiritual web, right? Uh-huh. Um, so if you have been adopted and um, there is a connection there you want to explore that isn't something I've, I've thought about but I think you make entire sense there mm-hmm. well I actually had quite an interesting experience when we were doing our one of our journeys to Papa Bones um where we part of that was you know to talk to your ancestors that were there yeah. um and I kind of walked around like my little tree corner and there was like a red-headed viking you know and it was it wasn't what i was expecting to see 
but it was just that you know I have no I have like you know I know that I have that in my family from my dad's side but I don't have like any direct connection to that lineage or understanding no stories none of that kind of thing but I saw this um yeah this white ancestor and that was like a very interesting experience it kind of opened my mind up because sometimes when I feel like when we talk about ancestor veneration it can feel very much like yeah you have to know who they are their names their stories but actually if you start to just do the spirit work then you and you believe then you can just start to connect with those honorable ancestors that are there to to offer you support Absolutely. Um, you know that's my take um what I, I wanted to actually this is a bit sorry off subject back off of ancestors <laughs> but like just in your in the intro of your book there's just one paragraph that mm-hmm. really hit me yesterday when I was reading it because for me and my practice of via and um, kind of finding my way there it was really important and it kind of um, we did an episode called trusting your intuition and it really just spoke to me about that kind of like finding your own power so you just say like learn to trust your inse- instincts if something sounds like a pack of lies then it probably is do not be afraid to question everyone and everything the more you do this the keener your instincts will become your gut feeling is often never wrong something I think everyone has learned through experience at one time or another how many times have you done something even though it just felt wrong countless yeah and I don't know I feel like it's so important it's like such an important point also just to kind of go yeah you you can know like you can genuinely know what is right for you again we just released an episode about cults and all that kind of thing and I think this is such an important point especially with the practice of a beer bring it make it your own trust your own instincts and your gut with it I don't know. Do you do you get what I'm saying? Do you have that, like? I do, and I 100% agree with you. You Mm -hmm. know, Um, you've got to trust your gut instincts. I mean, we've all done it. Even many of us do it in our own day to day lives in very small ways. And how many times you think, "Oh, I knew that would happen." If you mm-hmm. didn't know it would happen and you ignored that knowing, (laughs) you know, we all do it. Um, Yeah, and I just think there's so many internet experts now and I I think it's always important that you question people who portray themselves as teachers Um, and I think it's a massive red flag when people get annoyed with such questioning you know as if how dare you question me like no you should expect if you're putting yourself out there as a teacher or an expert on anything you should be expect to be questioned Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a massive red flag when people get annoyed with with well-meaning questions, you know. Definitely. You should always be able to ask. And That's one of the things I've really enjoyed actually having you as a mentor is that I do feel like, and there's always like, just text me of anything. And I don't just do that all the time. I, <laughs> I want to, but I genuinely feel like no question is, is like a stupid question. You know, there's always, you always will answer whatever. Even if I feel like you have to go off and think about it, you're always going to answer. Yeah, no question is a stupid question. So, like, I can remember when I first started, like, so I kickbox, well, I used to kickbox and box competitively. I'm too old Mm -hmm. for that now. But when I was (laughs) um, training, and it was a few fights in, so you start off training, you get into it, and then you think, oh, I might want to compete, so you have a few fights. And it was a few fights in, and I'd had this question that I'd been wanting like I didn't know and I didn't dare ask my coach because I thought it was a stupid question and then one day we had this we went training and not many people turned up and it ended up being a really good session for me so I had like one-on-one sparring training with my coach 
um, so valuable. But then we were doing it, and then I thought, right, I'm going to have to ask this question. And I'm like, where do I look? <laughs> and he's like, it sounds so stupid. I'm like, where do I put my eyes when I'm sparring with you? I'm like, because if I look at you, like, in your head, that's just also weird, and and then <laughs> I don't know where to look. And, so, and you know, and it's just an example of when you think you've got a stupid question, but actually it's a really good question. And it was like, well, you look in at the kind of chest area, you know, because there, looking at the, you can see their body, you can see their movements, you know. If a kick's coming up, you see it. Um, if they're going to punch you, you see it. If they're going to move, you see it. You, by looking at that that part of their body there, you know, um, mm-hmm. you see everything. And it was just like, ah. And that was like one of the questions, that was like a pivotal moment in my kickboxing and boxing training. It was like, ah, a light had been just kind of switched on. So there is no stupid question. <laughs> it's so funny because I actually had a very similar experience at, at Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't I didn't come out and ask the question I was just told by my coach to stop looking longingly into his eyes and just watch <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big thing where do you look but I totally get yeah. that <laughs> so what do you hope this book will give you the next generation of witches um, I hope it will give them um, just really the empowerment of being able to choose for themselves. You know, there's a whole section at the back of the book where I talk about adapting spells because I think adapting stuff is so important through, you know, it's something we can see with witchcraft and Obia. They have always been adaptable. They continue to be adaptable. And I hope that by, you know, there's so many options in that book. Everything, every working, every spell, every ritual in that book can be adapted to suit where you are and your own personal beliefs and your own needs and wants. And I think being adaptable is what's going to give the next generation the power to kind of continue the good fight, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Emma, we're, I think now's as good as time as any to hear about your socials, what projects you're working on at the moment, any books that you have. Um, let us know where we can find you. Okay, so you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, um, all Emma Catherine Wild Witch. I'm quite new to TikTok. Not <laughs> um, <Aren't> we all? <laughs> yeah, Emma Catherine will be a woman on there. Um, but, you know, I have the blog, which is Emma Catherine Wild Witchcraft, but you can find my writing at Godden Radicals Press. Um, they have an online journal where all the articles are accessible for free. The same with House of Twigs. But you can also buy my books. So, and we have Reclaiming Ourselves and Reclaiming Food. They're available from Godden Radicals. You can check out their website. Um, and then Witch Life is available from Llewellyn and all good bookstores. Yes. <laughs> definitely get this book it is i just want to say i just need to say this i i, I love this book already after oh, only having so it for like two days because to me as somebody who's been practicing this for a very long time but still feels like oh my god what the fuck am i doing <laughs> like we every day like that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just complete like. it's complete it's like everything that you would 
everything that you'd want to explore actually within in your craft practice is in this book seriously guys i have it feels like i have thousands of books on occult witchcraft shamanism and this just covers like every aspect so you've got the whole wheel of the year the the adapting spells bits i think again like is a beautiful gift that you've put in this book because so many times we just go okay so these are the words you have to say and this is the way you have to do the thing whereas this explains to you how you can adapt that completely for yourself even the uh this like jay said the casting dowsing scrying and writing trance work i've just haven't had a book that has had all of those aspects in the one book so please go out I mean, not that I love them, but I just got some Amazon guys. You can get it delivered to your house by tomorrow. So, <laughs> Witch Life, Emma Catherine, you need it for your cold bookshelf. You do. <laughs> you really do, you honestly. Really do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much today, Emma. We are so entirely happy to have you here. Entirely happy to have even met you in the first instance. Oh, this podcast. <laughs> we are mutual. Honestly, I feel like we are friends for life. Yeah, definitely. You know, you this won't podcast get rid of wouldn't exist without <laughs> Emma. It is because we've yeah. met her that it exists today. So, exactly. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Well, as always, you can find us on. Um, on socials, Instagram at the Afro Animist Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Afro Animist. You can find us on TikTok, Afro Animist Podcast. <laughs> or you can yeah, go I'm to kidding. our Instagram and go to our link tree, and all of the links will be in there. <laughs> <laughs> Please remember to share these episodes with people, share them on all of your socials, send them to people personally. We're really trying to build a community here um, and we're entirely grateful for having you as a part of that and helping us to grow this community. Um, you've been listening to me, Jay Percy, the artist. And me, Nicola, and our wonderful guest, Emma. Thank you. Emma Catherine. <laughs> yeah, go out there and make magic, people. <laughs> so thank you. Like like Jay said, join the conversation online um, and we will see you next week. Bye.